In the beginning, God made humanity to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth. Ten chapters later, rather than spreading out, they're building up. The story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11 is an incredibly rich passage full of confusion, nuance, and ultimately a vision for all of humanity. Mixing up, 70-year timeouts, and most people, this week on A Rabbi and a Pastor Walked In. Hi, I am Rabbi Ari Carton. And Daniel Parrish. And we're going to talk about the Tower of Babel and the descendants of Noah after this. You think it's another one of those phone books in the Bible with a whole lot of people. But we'll start with the Tower of Babel story. And it's actually not about the tower so much as about the city. Because um, they talk about building a city with a tower. But we can call it the Tower of Babel. <laughs> what the heck? Well, and this comes in the context of um, just having, you know, dealt with the flood situation and then this table of nations and trying to understand where we're all coming from. And then all of a sudden we have this everybody unified with one um, specific language and common speech. And now something's going to happen. So one of the things about the story is that the people had not fulfilled the original command to Adam and Eve, and then the command to Noah and Naamah, his wife, theoretically, which was to spread out. They hadn't spread out. Interesting. So said to uh, conquer the world, you know, and, and fill it. And they didn't. They congregated together. And so you'd say, what is wrong with that? Well, the answer is because God wanted them to be all over the place and not just sit in one spot. So instead of going broad, they went tall. Hmm. And that's what the story is. And so let me read it in my own crazy translation, All just right. so you can hear what's going on in the Hebrew. It's chapter 11, the first nine verses of Genesis. And all the land was of one language and few words. And it was in their journeying from before, that was east, but they call it four. And they found a rift valley in the land of shaking. That's the way, what Shinar means, to shake. And they settled there. And they said to one another, let's make bricks and burn lime. And the brickwork was to them as stone, and the lime was mortar. Then they said, let's build a city and a tower and its head in the skies, and we'll make us a name, lest we be spread on the face of the land. So God descended to see the city and the tower which the children of the human had built. And God said, hey, one people, one language they have, and now this they've made, and now nothing will be withheld from them that they plot to do. So let's go down and mix up their, their language that none will heed each other the language of his neighbor. So God spread them from there on the face of the land and they ceased to build the city. The tower, we don't know, but the city they stopped building. Hmm. On account of this, he called the city's name Babel, Babel, mix up. For there God mixed Balal, the language of the land. And from there, God spread them over the face of all the land. One of the interesting things about Babel, Babel, is it when you talk about somebody babbling on or a babbling brook that makes no sense, that's exactly what the Hebrew is saying. Hmm. And um, it's connected to the word like barbar, barbarian, comes from barbar, babal, people saying, oh, it just sounds like nothing. And so talking about somebody you don't understand as a babbler or a barbarian hmm. has to do with their language mostly. So what do you think they're trying to do here? Who? Why? God, the, the people. The people. They don't want to split up. Hmm. I don't blame them. I mean, if they're, there weren't that awfully many of them, but there were at least 70. But why are they trying to build something that reaches up to the sky? 
So they wanted, well, you know, they built uh, skyscrapers in San Francisco. Here. <laughs> uh, they, they didn't want to go far. Hmm. They wanted to build up. Now, the, the question is, and everybody assumes they were daring God somehow. And a lot of people look at the story of Nimrod, which is only mentioned in a couple verses, uh, and assume that he was the king of Babel. Interesting story, and that he was an evil guy, and he wanted to challenge God. But there's none of that in here. There's absolutely nothing about rebellion against God. If anything, they want to get closer. Well, except that they also want to make a name for themselves, right? And that's the funny thing, because the word name is Shem, Mm -hmm. which is one of the sons of Noah. And so another story that comes out of trying to figure out why God got so exercised about this is that they made an idol. Hmm. to represent Shem, by the way, who was still alive. Right. So I know if you look at the the, According to the... the lifespans and who lived when, Shem was alive into the lifespan and 15 years into Jacob's life. Hmm. That's that, It's kind of funny you don't think about that, but it's true. Well, I, I think one of the interesting pictures that's also here is that if you go back to Genesis chapter 6, right, with the flood narrative, we have this really weird thing that we don't understand very much about the Nephilim. The, the fallen. The fallen ones, right? Like if I'm uh, a Ninofelet, right? Like I, if I you fell fall. down, you right? You fall, it's Nofel. Yeah, right. Nephil is a, is a fallen person. Nephilim are the fallen ones. Right. So this weird thing of like right before the flood and the wickedness on the face of the earth and all of the stuff that God's going to see there. He sees, you know, the sons back in six, the sons and daughters, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they married any of them that they chose. And the Lord said, my spirit's not going to contend with man forever. He's mortal. His days will be 120. And so the Nephilim were on earth in those days. And afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children of them by them, they were the heroes of old and men of renown. It's yes. a weird story, right? I'm Shay Shem. Men of Shem. Men of Shem. Right. <laughs> exactly. So one of the ways that we it can maybe... Gang, you know, it's his gang, right? The Shemsters. <laughs> we have these things that are weird beings. Like, are they angelic? Are they divine? Are they heavenly beings? And they're coming down and they're trying to mate with humans. And God gets upset about this. And then there will be a flood as well, right? So all and of this kind of... What the heck is this? There's nothing else thing. in the whole Bible about this. Right, it's very odd. But then bracketing our flood narrative, so we have got something from the heavens trying to come down, and now when we get to the Tower of Babel, something we've got trying something to go trying to go up. Yeah. And so in at least in part, we can see in this Tower of Babel narrative where God is saying, no, there are realms that are going to be separate. And so there's this heavenly realm, and there's this realm that exists underneath the waters that are there, right, in the sky, the Shemaim, the their waters versus (laughs) the waters down here. And so then instead of like heavenly beings trying to reach down towards humanity or humanity now trying to reach up and either become like God or make a name for themselves or reach up to the heavenlies, God is going to stop both of these things. So it's at least one way to also understand is just from a narrative um, literary construct as we kind of push through we've got something reaching down and then flood and now something reaching back up and God's going to stop that too that's right and one of the one of the one of the problems with this particular story and some of the little bitty snippets that kind of wander around like unchecked pieces of random DNA in the Bible is that since there's almost nothing that defines what these strange situations are right the amount of incredible inventiveness. Right. We have to think of something. Yeah, we got to figure out why is it there? 
Mm-hmm. What, what is that all about? It mm-hmm. doesn't do... The only thing that Jews do with that story of the Nephilim is to say that the 120 years is the ideal human lifestyle. Well, it's also what Moses will get. Well, it's what Moses will get to, right. And so, as a a matter of fact, in Yiddish, you see, I'd manzvansig, you know, bizmanzvansig, excuse me, hundredensvansig, I'm spitting Hebrew and English, I did at the same time. Um, But uh, To 120. But 120 seems to be right now the maximum average Mm -hmm. human lifespan. Mm -hmm. It hasn't changed. Mm -hmm. I mean, even though life life, uh, expectancy has changed, the maximum lifespan has not changed since biblical days. People did live that long, long ago in the Mm -hmm. hundreds, but Mm -hmm. otherwise it wouldn't be stories about people living into their hundreds. But in any case, uh, I don't know what this is all about. And it doesn't do, it's not a part, uh, not a significant part of Jewish storytelling. The Tower of Babel. No, the Nephilim. Oh, the Nephilim, yeah. yeah. Um, though I will tell you some one little anecdote. So uh, one of my best friends when I was growing up, my very best friend, um, was Catholic, and he needed somebody to practice a catechism with. And when I was like five or six or whatever it was, I forget what it was, and he would practice his catechism, and I'd have the book, and I would make sure he got his answers right. And it had uh, illustrations that came out of Milton's Paradise Lost. Hmm. And so the picture of the Nephilim was Lucifer, being kicked backwards out of heaven. Right, right. right. And that thing yeah. stayed with me as a nightmare for sure. years. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and so obviously that's the Nephilim story gives rise to the Lucifer being kicked out of heaven story. Right. Yep. It's all all some of those connections and trying to understand a world that we don't quite understand. Right. And when we get to the Tower of Babel but by here. But to say, that's not a Jewish story. And no. We don't care about that at all. No. And when we get to the Tower of Babel, then we have um, no parallel in other Babylonian texts regarding this story. Whereas for the flood narrative, we do have some other parallels about, you know, some other literatures that also talk about a great big massive flood. But for the Tower of Babel, we don't. Um, though it does describe quite well the architecture that's found in Babylon, the ziggurat that you can go and right. see and the remains that you can ziggurat, see. Ziggurat, not cigarette. Not cigarette, no. Zig- the ziggurat was a stepped pyramid. A right. pyramid with steps. And so a lot of the holy mountain, it's an it's a image of a holy right. mountain. Right. Yeah. So Mount Sinai and Mount Zion and Mount Moriah and all those mountains in the Bible are thought to be, in some respects, the same impetus as the ziggurat built in A way to step up and get closer step to God. <laughs> step up and get closer to God, right? Yep. Yeah. So um, if you're interested in what it might have looked like, you can Google those search terms and see some of the remains that are found. Z-I-G-G-U-R-A-T, ziggurat, yeah. Ziggurat, yeah. It's very interesting. One of the fun things here is that um, there's a great deal of satire in the Tower of Babel story. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I have a hard time uh, getting people to realize is how funny the Bible is. And many, <laughs> right. They think, it, oh, it's, right. it's holy and serious right. and all that stuff, and they don't want to laugh. And the funniest line in it at all is the people built something to go up to the skies, right? And God had to go down to see it. That's so great. <laughs> that's that's the part that I, I, right. I mean, now, without an anthropomorphic God, mm-hmm. I, you know, what do you do with God going down to right. see it? But I'm like, I'm like, what we usually do with God going down to see what people are doing is to say at that point, God focuses special attention to make sure that right. the justice that God intends to do is based on evidence and not just hearsay. Mm-hmm. So that when God tells Abraham that God intends to 
blast away Sodom. Right. God says, I'm going to go down. Right. And what does God right. do? God sends two angels right. into the city mm-hmm. to be test cases as a police sting to see what the people will do. Will <laughs> they actually investigate. That's right. The guy, it's God's personal investigative service. So when God goes down, it means God's focusing special attention on this particular area. So God has to go down. And then God says, let's go down. Now, there are three times in the Bible, in Genesis 1 through 11, where God refers to God's self in the plural. And those are the only times ever in the whole rest of the Bible. And I had to ask myself, why? And I wrote a paper on it. And the first time is God says, let's us create people. Male and female, God created them. So there must be something. And they're in both in God's in the image. image in right, God's image. Right. So God's image is both male and female. So it's plural. Let's us go down. Then the second time is, oh, the humans are going to be like one of us when God kicks them out of Eden, knowing good and evil, knowing morals. So I'm going to kick them out of here. And so what is God? God is good and evil. Good as well as evil. Um, I know some people have a hard time hearing that, but if God didn't create it, then who did? There's only one God, so there's only one. Radical monotheism. I love the ones that say, Oh, evil is a hole in the universe. And I'm going, God created the holes too. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and the third time, what's God doing? And not, it's not a binary choice here. It's because there'll be 70 descendants. We'll talk about that in a second. And God gave them all languages where they couldn't talk to each other. That's how God split them up, which is, seems to be happening today in politics where people can't even talk to each other because right. of languages. To, we make up these horrible words to describe each other. Um, but in any case... There was, the concept is that there are 70 languages that God created. And because of that, when Ptolemy, King Ptolemy of Egypt, asked the rabbis in Alexandria to right. make a translation of the Torah, for, the Bible from And this Hebrew, is what year? 300 to something, 3rd century BCE. BCE, yeah. And, uh, and so they translated the Torah from, the, the Bible from Hebrew and Aramaic into Greek. And that became known as the Septuagint, the 70, because they supposedly used 70 rabbis. Why? One, to be a master of every possible interpretation of the language. And why 70? Because there were 70 languages that God created at the time of Babel by spreading out Noah's descendants, as it were. Um, so, and there's 70 faces of the text. So that's why it says, mm-hmm. panim. every part of the, of the Bible has 70 faces, 70 facets, like a 70-faceted mm-hmm. diamond. It'll sparkle. And, and 70 is the, is the world word that then becomes used for cosmos. Mm-hmm. And so there are 70 descendants of Jacob who go down to Egypt. And there are not 70 who come back. There's many, many more. But... The first place they come to after they cross the Reed Sea is Mara, and after Mara they go to Elim, where there are 12 palm trees, one per tribe, and uh, 12 springs, excuse me, and 70 palm trees. So that's like a marker post saying, okay, the 12 guys and the 70 people who went down, you're now 12 tribes and 70 palm trees and 600,000 males over 20 and possibly a population of 2 million but this is your symbol of 70 to show your 70 went down your 70 came back mm-hmm. there are 70 elders I was just going to say you know when the when the spirit falls down on uh, when Moses's job is too heavy for him right and so right. then the spirit falls down it falls down on 70 but then there's two out of the camp yeah. but it also falls down and so it's 70 slash 72 and that becomes a model for the Sanhedrin right, right? the, the for, high court which will have 72 which is one per 
prophesying elder um, right. of the time. And then in the in the Gospels, Jesus sends out the people who are following him, the disciples, and he sends them out in a group of 70, and there's a manuscript note that'll say some manuscripts say 72. <laughs> Is that fun? <laughs> 70 slash 72 again. A nice, beautiful hearkening back exactly to that Moses story. And the, uh, the world has to pass away before the effects of the Babylonian destruction are reversed. So Jeremiah's, I told you, 70 becomes a symbol of all the people, entirety cosmos. So right. Jeremiah says in chapter 25, and repeated in Zechariah 7 and Daniel 9, that there will be 70 years before you come back. And so that the world, the cosmos, has to pass away a 70, a timeout of 70 a years. A timeout, right. Yes, Don't we know that from having children, but we do not <laughs> condemn them to 70-year timeouts because we want grandchildren before then. So. <laughs> well, and here we are, right? This Tower of Babel story is at the culmination of this universal history yes. that's not Jewish, not Christian, not Muslim, just a universalist human history up to this point in this first 11 chapters. And it's ending with, um, you know, a, a scattering of people and and disunity where there had been it's actually quite a sad story in many ways right i think so often of how i would love to speak every language that's out there for the sake of being able to communicate right wouldn't that be wonderful (laughs) and the beauty of that so there's something um a little bit lost right we're we're now it's i think in many ways this story is explaining what we live in today it's also a story of emigrants Right. That is, this, they're going to go out and just spread out across the entire planet. Um, and that's, I, I think that's par- part of what um, we get from this, is that it's our job not only to do good where we are, but to be all the places. Right. So in, in right. the time that this was written, it was written for people who live on one planet. We still live on one planet. But the impetus is, there's a whole universe that God created go populate it. Now, that's kind of a ethnocentric, humanocentric, colonialist kind of thing, because I'm sure that there are sentient beings in other places. So for us, they're they're already being populated. It's not our problem to go do them, but we're going to go out there anyway and find what what's Mm. out there. Mm. Um, But if there if there's a place that's not populated and people can live there, it's not that we have the obligation, the mitzvah, the duty to go out there and do it, to populate it, but we do have the impetus that comes from this very story to go out and do it. Right, right. Yes. Now, I know there's a story in uh, rabbinics about uh, why God was sort of grieved over them making this tower. And do you remember the story? It's kind of like a fable about what was happening when a brick would, how long it would take for a brick to get to the top and then to fall back down again. Are you familiar with this no. story? <laughs> so the, the fable, I like this fable, and it, says, it goes along the lines of, you know, it, um, the humanity was so interested and concentrated in building this very large, very beautiful, very incredible tower that was going to reach to the sky. They were so work, working so hard on it. It was so high that it would take days and days for a single brick from the bottom to reach up to the very top. 
and that when a human being at the top working on the tower would fall, nobody would cry. But because it took too long for the brick to get oh, up to yeah, the top, so, right? Yeah. Then, then the brick would fall and that people would mourn for the loss of the brick and not for the loss of the human life. And that's one of the other reasons why, you know, God, I mean, it's imaginative and it's reading into the text, obviously, but I, I think behind that's an interesting idea of what's most important to you and where do you value life and where do you place your value? And is it just in what you're building for yourself? Or is it in the life of the other human being that you're building alongside of? Um, so I, I like that aspect. Um, and then for Christians, we have an interesting story in the beginning of Acts chapter 2 that sort of harkens back to Babel just a little bit. Um, and maybe, so when when Moses gathers everybody at Mount Sinai, well, God gathers everybody at Mount Sinai, Moses goes up and talks to God and he gets the, the commandments. Um, there is a teaching, right, that when God speaks, he speaks in the 70 languages and it goes out into the midbar, into a place without boundary, to the desert, and that all of humanity could hear God's commands, but that only the Israelites were the ones that said yes. We will hear and we will do, right? And of the Edomites, uh, God said, you want the Torah? And Edom says, what's in it? And God said, don't murder. And they said, oh, I'm sorry if we do that. We like that. And We're then they went to, God went to the Ammonites and Moabites and they said, what's in it? And God said, don't commit adultery. They said, well, you know, we're, we're the children of incest. We really can't do that. And so on and on and on, one reason after another that uh, people re rejected it. And then here's the, here's the, the and the Jews accepted and said, Naseh and Ishmael, we'll do it, and then we'll listen, and we'll obey it. But there's another story. It says the people were gathered at the bottom of the mountain, the Tachtit HaHar. Right. And the, and the rabbi says, what does that mean? And it can mean two things. They were all around the mountain down below. The other one is that God wanted them to have the Torah, and they were going, I don't know. And God picked up the mountain on top of them and said, do you want a Torah now that you're under the mountain? And they said, you know, a Torah is such a great <laughs> idea. Give us a Torah. Well, give us the Torah <laughs> under the mountain. Exactly. So the idea of, you know, all of humanity being given the opportunity to say yes to these commands of God, because it goes out in these 70 languages. When we get to um, Acts chapter 2, it's Shavuot. And Shavuot is the celebration of? Revelation at Mount Sinai. The Revelation Originally, at Mount Sinai. Originally, it was the, just another Just another festival, festival, but it becomes... Becomes the uh, Especially because you can count, right? You, you count. count the 50 days coming outside of the Passover, everything else. So Don't get me started on that one, though. That's, that's a weird one. I, so, so I've actually written a paper on this, and, and the idea of Acts chapter 2, I think so many Christians have always thought, oh, Pentecost is the birthday of the church, and that's when the Holy Spirit showed up. It's None of that is actually... Uh, in concert with our text, um, that the presence, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh is pre-existent if you're a good Trinitarian Christian, that you believe all of God is pre-existent before. Um, and so at this um, Acts chapter 2 event, they are remembering the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai that came out in these languages. And while they're there at the temple in Jerusalem, remembering this, all of a sudden this weird thing happens again, where there's fire and there's voices and languages and everyone starts to speak in these languages that all of these other people can understand. And so it's the day of Shavuot is there, the whole house of God gets filled, they're filled with the Holy Spirit and everyone begins to speak 
in these other languages as God enables them. One of my them. favorite words, glossolalia. Right, exactly. Speaking in tongues. Right. But it's actual languages here, right? Um, and it says in verse 5 of chapter 2 of Acts, they, they were there staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Why are they all there? Well, because Shavuot's a pilgrimage festival, right? They all are coming in. Even if they live in other countries, they're coming for their pilgrimage festival. And when they heard this sound, the crowd comes together in bewilderment because each one hears them speaking in their own language. Utterly amazed, they ask, are not all of these men that are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of them hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, it continues on and on. And so they're amazed, what does this mean? And at least in part, I see this reversal of Babel. Because in when the Tower of Babel is built, the people are scattered and they don't understand one another anymore, and their language is all mixed up. But in this Acts chapter 2 event, we have people being brought back together, and they can start to understand one another, even though they're still speaking different languages. How is it that we understand them, and we understand them as though they're speaking our own language, and we're all together, but we're all from these different places? And it's not that... um, everything from that point forward, all of a sudden we're all downloaded with Google Translate and all of us can understand one another, or if you are a follower of it's Jesus, coming. right, or <laughs> someday. But, um, but I think instead of a, a hint, a glimpse of what can happen when we can start to speak the same language and um, gather around in the house of God without being separated by these languages, but instead being united by that common one. It and happened in 1948. So when everybody mm. began to come to Israel in en masse, because right. it was formed then, and they would begin, Jews began to get kicked out of countries and uh, Muslim and Arab countries, and then people were coming from other places. Israel has been this major polyglot where there are so many languages going on. And the only language that many people had in common then was to learn Hebrew. Right. So it was kind of a reversal. Our ancestors thought that this, the original language that God spoke and that Adam spoke was Hebrew, and then God then gave other languages to the world. Whether you believe that or not, what this was was a reversal of that. That is, people came speaking all the other languages, and then they began to speak Hebrew. They came back. Because right. now they speak English, too. <laughs> right. And it's hard to get an Israeli to speak Hebrew. <laughs> if you go there and your Hebrew is bad, they rather just, enough, enough, enough. I can speak English better than you can speak Hebrew. But, <laughs> but, but still, to go back and to forge all those languages, uh, including from India and China, and right. uh, and and, and uh, uh, Southeast Asia, all kinds of places: uh, Spanish and French and German and Russian and Ukrainian and this and then English too. Is everybody going in there speaking in that language? And I remember going around and seeing signs in just about every language in 1970. The first time I went there, I was so surprised. Just and you you walking in Jerusalem, and you certainly hear Hebrew, and you certainly hear English, but you hear in Arabic, but you certainly hear everything. Just any language you can you can, can think of. And it's not just because they're tourists, but they're people who, they live there and they, they speak those. Right. It's a, it is a fascinating, particularly in Jerusalem, yeah. fascinating international city. Yes. Um, and uh, we have tastes of that here in the Bay Area as well, where we start to, I, I take my daughter to the park and I hear four to six other languages within just a very small group of persons at the park. You know, we're all um, living in this place where it's across sections of the world, right? And we start to um, see and 
and hear um, different places where we're all from and different languages and different sounds and different tastes. I remember years ago, we had some friends come to visit and we said, well, what do you want for dinner? And they said, I don't know. What do you have around? We're like, name a country. (laughs) (laughs) Name a country and we can take you there. (laughs) It's, you know, it's kind of funny because we live here in Palo Alto. This area is a major melting pot uh, for Spanish speakers and Asian language speakers and uh, other and European language speakers, and you just hear and Hebrew and Arabic, Hebrew and Arabic, and, yeah. and everything. You just you hear all these languages, and it, you just get used to it. I mean, it's, there's never been a time living here when I didn't hear it. It's certainly much more now. That much more now than even just 20 when years ago. When I moved ago. here, it was Apricot Valley, and then 10 years later, it was Silicon Valley. But now you hear everything, and our, my kids who went to grade school and high school here. Um, just got used to it. They just knew that people speak all kinds of languages, and you will hear it Russian, just everything, and uh, and and you get used to that. And I can imagine, and I know there are great swaths of the country where they only speak English, right? And they they don't hear anything else at all. It's the difference between long horizon lines and short horizon lines. Um, That if you typically live um, geographically in a location where your horizon lines are longer, where as you look out, you see the sea or you see, you know, big, long spans of where you can be connecting with other countries, right? (laughs) Or your horizon lines are shorter. And the same is true also in Israel Mm -hmm. in that when you get into, even this very small country, when you get into the innermost portions of the country, like in the Judean hills where Jerusalem is located, the horizon lines are shorter. Yep. Um, And when you get out into the Galilee, the horizon lines are longer, right? These cross sections of the world, when you're going up north, you can connect. And certainly on the coast of Tel Aviv, you can see Absolutely. So you have places where it's more international and places where it's more national. In nationalist, you know, in terms of its its worldview, its experience, Jerusalem's that weird exception because it's such an international city in so many ways, where people from all over the world are coming. But it still has some of that. And certainly, two thousand years ago, as we read, um, as I read my New Testament story and the Gospel stories, it comes into play where there's this sort of conflict between the Galileans and the Judeans and farm life versus city life, or internationals, you know, where the Romans are coming in or the Philistines are coming in. All of that comes into play, and I think that takes us back again to this weird little interesting scenario at the end of these 11 chapters um, of shared history that now faced with the Tower of Babel and faced with um, a humanity that was trying to reach up and become again like God, just like they did back at the garden before, that just like at the garden before where they were trying to become like God and that was the concern, right? They're going to get kicked out. The Tower of Babel pushes us back out again. But now the question is for all of us, where do we want it? What do we want to do with that? And I think you and I have both chosen to try to find ways to start to listen to one another's languages and start to lean in a little bit and find a way back in. Um, because it tells us more about who our God is, because it tells us more about who the, how the world works and this beautiful world that God's created, and it tells us more about ourselves. I think one of the, one of the things we've talked about in terms of Jesus as a symbol is that it's one human being, male. And therefore, if, and and, and the way Jesus is depicted, and we've talked about that before, you know, somebody from Norway. And (laughs) with hair like yours, long long blonde hair. And and if that's all you're used to, and that's what you think that the ideal human being would be, well, then it's very difficult to be tolerant and aware of and respectful of people who look very different. And, And so that is 
one of the that's one of the major challenges to Christianity. Um, I mean, Jews have our own problems with being insular about the fact that it's a people. It's Judah, North American, North American Christianity specifically, well, or maybe yeah. European as well, um, because there's a whole bunch of Christians and on the continent of Africa, Asia, South America, and their Jesus and the, any depictions of Jesus they have look very different than the ones that we have. Yeah, I just came from uh, South America and saw pictures of Jesus that look much more like Incas, you know, Native Americans right. from, uh, from Latin America. But, um, but that is a problem because the more you think of that there's one ideal form of humanity, human being, the, the less likely you are to be respectful of the variations. And so that's just a stumbling block. And when you, when you have, but if you realize that God created people to be very varied, mm-hmm. and specifically here, if you read the list of the 70 descendants of Noah, uh, and you read the description commentaries of where these, these names actually were prevalent, they represent ethnic groups from Asia, Africa, and Europe. And so uh, it, it sounds like not only is the, are the languages being created, but ethnicities are being created on these different places. And so that God is intending not for people to stand and make an idol out of one person, Shem, as it were, a name. Or one people. Or one people or one language or one thought process because every language mm-hmm. is a thought process because you can't translate directly from any one language into any other um, you always have to make it up. And, and so at this moment, the human family are created as well. Languages, visages, forms, areas. And uh, one of the interesting things that, um, that I, I learned is that, you know, wine, why does wine taste different from different places? And the answer is it's the soil. I found that the same thing applies to vanilla beans. <laughs> Which is why Madagascar vanilla beans or right. coffee, right? You know, and all chocolate. these things, chocolate, all these things. Uh, are, and so, when you grow up in different climates, you have uh, with different food and different things to do. They people are different because they grow up in those places. And so, there is that. Not a, not only did God want us to to go out, and God made this nice big housing, you know, development for us called Planet. Go out and live in it. But God wanted us to be different. God wanted. God knew that there'd be more of this in the soil here and more of that in the soil there, the different climates. And so we all became very, very different. One of my biggest um, regrets is uh, television and movies have made English flatten out the regional languages that were always so prevalent. When I first went to a youth group camp uh, in the East Coast uh, when I was uh, 16, it's the first time I really read lots of people, lots of kids from all over the country, and they all had different accents, you know, and it was a Boston, and there was a Lakes accent in Chicago, you know. Texas was different than Alabama, and I really enjoyed that. Hmm. Uh, and, uh, and now you just hear people coming from any city, and you can't tell where they're from. And it's just not as much fun anymore. I, I, enjoy, <laughs> I always enjoyed that. I, I know that would make other people kind of angry. And I guess it's just a matter of, how much, are, how much tolerance do you have for change and, and things that are different? Is it interesting to you or does it make you feel threatened? Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and I know there are a lot of people out there that feel threatened by anything that don't look like them. And, uh, and that's a problem. So. It is. Um, and, and I think 
And again, for Christians also holding on to that Acts chapter 2 story, and as we look at the person of Jesus, and, and for Christians, we believe, you know, again, that God is one, and so this is an express, you know, the person of God in human form, but as a first century Jew. <laughs> so, right. so there is a commonality there, at least in terms of what that humanity, we have to take seriously that first century Jewish flesh um, and understand what life was like, right? That God could have come as for Christians, like as in any form, and this is the way that God decided to be God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So as we take in that into consideration, and then as we look into our story of Acts chapter 2, where we see that when this Holy Spirit comes that Jesus had promised, um, that we can understand one another. And, and there's this um, spirit coming out and lighting on each person and everybody feeling that presence of God and then taking that presence then out into the world to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Um, that that meant for us that it was in, it was an invitation for everyone to come regardless of, you know, Jew, Greek, slave, free, male, female, all are one in Christ Jesus. This is something Paul says two different times in the New Testament, that we have a focus on um, seeing all of humanity apart from gender, apart from nationality, apart from status within that Roman culture, from class and all of those different things, that everybody gets um, a welcoming seat at that table. And, uh, and that's a really huge challenge, but it's part of what I see from the Tower of Babel and then continuing and pushing on and then ultimately all the way through to when you know heaven comes crashing down onto earth again is that we get this opportunity to honor the beautiful diversity of God's kingdom and see that everybody is welcome. One last thing is that uh, in addition to the languages, in addition to our different physicalities and our different locations, etc., all this led also to different religions. And uh, when one of the big surprises for Abraham and Sarah was to meet Melchizedek, uh, the king of Shalem, Melchizedek, um, king of Salem, uh, in uh, Genesis uh, uh, 20. No, no, 14, 14. And, he, and, he, and, and, and Melchizedek is a monotheist. Right. And the thing is, it's hard to... King of righteousness. Right. You have to look and see, do I, where can I find a kindred spirit for my spirituality in addition to somebody I can speak a language to theoretically understand? How can I speak a spiritual language that somebody else might understand. And maybe I can talk to you in my language and your language, we'll find, still find kindred spirits right. who, who have that. So, so looking across the world for kindred spirits, mm -hmm. um, what Abraham had to learn to do through several times was to learn to trust. The reason I said chapter 20 was because Abimelech, the king of Gerar, turns out to be a God-fearer as well. And, it, and he was not, Abraham was not expecting that. And so there are all kinds of people that we take for granted as being the wrong kind of people and then you find out that oh they're wonderful people and um, I have stories about that but I'm not going to go there. I just think that the, the, the goal for everybody now, the quest we have is since we've been spread across the world and we speak so many different languages with so many different idioms and understandings etc is to find the kindred spirits and to believe that they're out there instead of to give up hope. I mean, if Abraham had to be taught the hard way right. to find that, right. then certainly I do, and certainly everybody else in this planet does too. There's this wonderful children's book that um, is recently published called Most People. 
And the whole point of the book is to um, explain to the child that you're reading to. It's by Michael Lena and um, illustrated by Jennifer Morris. And the whole point is most people are kind. Most people are looking to do good. Most people are going to go to help if they see someone hurt. Most people will try to help somebody feel better if they see someone sad. Yes, there are some people out there who are doing hurtful behavior, but most people. And this is, it's such a wonderful book to read to a kid, right? And say, like, most people out there you can trust. Most people out there. And, and as the, the book is illustrated, the illustrations are, are photos, illustrations of very, very different looking people from all over the world in different places and settings. And they're all finding ways to be kind. And, and so if you're looking for something to feel hopeful at, go to your local library and pick up a book called Most People. <laughs> God will. Oh. Oh.